So Revelation, again, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His saints. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, the word of the Lord. So we see chapter 19, what I believe everyone can agree on, and what is the most obvious is that it follows chapter 18. And now we'll go into disputed topics. The, what we do see is now, after the downfall and destruction of Babylon in chapter 18, the destruction of the great representative city of all ungodly and anti-Christian powers. Finally, one day, put to an end. All these powers motivated and empowered by Satan. Look at um, chapter 18, verse 5. It says, For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. In other words, he is now bringing to the forefront of his activity the judgment of this harlot Babylon. The kings of the earth, the merchants of the land, the merchants of the sea bought into her charms. They used her for their political power to build their own personal kingdoms, to manipulate others to their own purposes. And so they were using her for this reason. And when she is finally judged and put down, these men, women, lament, wail, mourn for her destruction. But in verse, chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, we're told the perspective from heaven is that rejoice over her, O heaven, don't mourn. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it 
into the sea, saying, So Babylon, the great city, is thrown down with violence and will be no more. And then chapter 19, we see further the perspective of, of heaven on this. The rejoicing in heaven over the destruction of the ungodly city of Babylon. So remember, Old Testament, Babylon was one of those great evil cities. It had been destroyed, the actual city of Babylon destroyed many years before Revelation was written. But it still stands as the symbolic power of satanic influence in the world as he works through men and women who seek to yield its power for evil. They're often deceived. Well, they're always deceived by this, but they go into this full aware that they will gain their ungodly purposes from the use of this power. So heaven rejoices over the destruction of this ungodly city. We sometimes get a glimpse or even a long look at evil in this world, and we wonder how can God let this happen, or even if he cares. But Revelation is written to instruct us that not only does he care, but that evil will be judged, and his people will be protected and They'll be remembered as well in glory. So in verse 1, we see, I heard what seemed to be, it's after this is the first thing it says here. And so this is again, so now this switching scene, he's having this vision, and what he's doing now is he's hearing something, and he hears something that seems to be a loud voice. Okay, so this is emphatic, it's loud, and it was a voice of a great multitude in heaven. So it's not just one voice, but they're speaking as one voice. And this is what they're saying, this great multitude in heaven. So you're talking about angels, you're talking about uh, uh, saints in heaven, all of these. And when I say saints, I mean believers who have trusted in the Lord and are now died or in heaven. We, too, are called saints in the Bible. It's a Latin word, translates hagias, the Greek word, which means holy ones. We are set apart for God's purposes. We are the saints of God. And what's this one voice that he hears? And it's loud, and it's a great multitude, and they are saying, Hallelujah! And you'll also see that in verse 3. Hallelujah! You'll see it in verse 6. Hallelujah! Also, it's stuck in there in verse 4. Hallelujah! In the midst of one of these hymns. So the way my Bible has done this is they have taken... Um, sections of this scripture and they've done these little double indents so it's kind of so it's supposed to look more like you're supposed to clue into the fact that this is poetry that this is a hymn this is a song that's being sung um, I don't believe it was originally written like that so this is some editorial a device to help you to kind of see this visually but each time we see this word hallelujah we are indeed to be clued in to something and what we're to be clued into is the fact that this word, hallelujah, it's called a transliteration of a Hebrew word, which means hallelujah, that's a Hebrew word. Now, if you, Hebrew letters look different than our English letters, and they look different than Greek letters. So what they've done is they just take the sound of hallelujah, and they've put it into Greek letters, hallelujah, and then for us, they've put it into English letters, and it says hallelujah, all right? All that just to say, this is a Hebrew word. We find this Hebrew word 24 times in the Old Testament. And it is only found in the book of Psalms. 
And what it means is, we use this word, I think whenever people say, you know, we've been going through the Ten Commandments on Wednesday nights, and, uh, you know, thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, uh, that the primary way that comes to mind is people using God's name like a cuss word, or just using God's name as a, a, an expletive, just kind of shouting out his name. And that surely is a way of doing it. It's not the only way of doing it, and it's not the typical way that believers do it. Um, This is a way that the world uses, I believe, hallelujah. People say this all over the world. This is one of those words that's kind of just come into expression. You know, hallelujah. You know, what you are saying is hallel, which means praise be unto. And then yah is short for Yahweh. So a person is actually saying, praise be unto Yahweh. And you don't mean it. You might say hallelujah over something quite sinful. And you're saying, praise be unto Yahweh. That's, that's, certainly the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Hallelujah for Jesus. Or we would all be guilty of these things. But here in Scripture... And we see it in the, in the Psalms, particularly as you get toward the end of the Psalms, you have the Hallel Psalms, and uh, the Psalms, there's a crescendo of, of Hallelujah, these last few Psalms will begin, believing in 140 or so, uh, they'll begin, what you see in your Bible, they'll say, um, praise the Lord, and they'll have that Lord in all caps, which is the Tetragrammaton, which is the four-lettered name for God, Yahweh, praise to the Lord, praise to Yahweh. I wish they'd just leave it alone and put the Hebrew in there, Hallelujah. And then at the end of the psalm, hallelujah. And it's not quite the same even as we use this word as, as believers and Christians. Well, we use it as just an exclamation, hallelujah, you know, awesome, amen, okay, great. And it does mean that, but it also is, is a little bit different because it's actually a, a, a command. Praise the Lord. So that's what we're saying, and we know we're doing it. We're kind of like praise the Lord. It's almost in a... Uh, a passive way, you know, rather than an indicative way, rather than telling people to praise the Lord. We're saying praise be unto God. And this word hallel, it's a hallelujah is a it's a two-word phrase. And what it means, the first part, hallel means is a joyous praise in song. A joyous praise in song or a hymn, H-Y-M-N. Um, so that's what we're saying. Hallelujah. It's not just praise him. Praise, and we'll use that word praise. You know, I've heard had seminaries who really hated the praise and worship phrase because they're like, there's no difference. <laughs> there's not praise and worship, there's just worship. What we're doing is praising God. You can praise Him with song, you can praise Him by reading the word, you can praise Him with the, you know, in everything that we do. Worship of God is giving Him praise. Hallelujah. Praise be unto God. But this is praise, particularly in joyous song. And we're saying, hallelujah. So this is a hymn. This is a song. And so they would be singing, but it's just one voice. How do we cry out with one voice? And one of the ways we do it is responsive reading or just reading together from the Word of God. So if you'll notice, sometimes when we're reading a confession or we're reading passages of Scripture, some people just have to jump ahead and read a little faster. Some people just got to kind of drag behind and go a little slower. Some people are going to kind of mumble through it. Some people stand there moving their lips as if they're saying something. And one of the best ways to get people to, to express their thoughts and their words as one is through music. 
Now, Joyce will tell you, whenever people sing a song, there's a meter, there's a beat, and everybody always plays and sings to the right beat, right? Oh, they do not. I know you fuss at people all the time. But yeah, it helps. <laughs> They're supposed to. There's, there's a meter. What I know is there are certain songs in the hymnal that are just too slow, to my personal liking. And um, I'll say, Joyce, can you play that a little bit faster? And I, she's, she's, goodness, she has grown through me being here. <laughs> and she is, her first thing was like, but it's full four time. It is what it is. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, you can play it faster, can't you? She's like, yes, I can. <laughs> and so she would. And also it's like, okay. And so then, you know, gradually I figure out it's like, you know, slow is good too, fast. Do it like it's written for a reason. But, you know, when you're singing, it is a way that we're able to, with one voice, and not even one voice, but you have different octaves and different uh, harmonies that we're even able to do. So, you know, people, some people sing high, some people sing low, and you get this one voice that comes out in a fullness. Now, when I've gone to presbytery, uh, it's mostly men, and in seminary classes sometimes mostly men, and they would sing from the Psalter, or they would sing something, especially when there's no musical accompaniment, and you just hear men's voices, like in a large room, lots of people, and it's just something about it, it's just powerful and deep and good, but it also kind of lacks something, so that when you get women that are in a room, they're singing by themselves, it's like, it, you know, it's a little more angelic or something to it, but it's missing something, but when you put it all together and everyone is singing with full voice, there, there's something that happens because God created something different when he created music. I mean, there's no reason for there to be music like we sing. I mean, I have a, a, a cartoon video that I would put up on Facebook or whatever around Christmas time, and there's a verse in the Bible that says, thou shall not multi multiply horses, talking to King David, not to you know, get his kingdom. Don't, don't start depending on physical things of the world. And then I'll say, this is why you don't multiply horses. And it's like five horses, and you can touch each one of them with your little clicker. And there's a bumbody the happy trails. But I think it's some Christmas song, and they're all doing it in harmony and stuff. And it's the coolest thing. And it's like, you, you don't hear horses doing that out there for real, though. How weird would that be to hear horses or cows mooing in harmony? I mean, man, you'd go find the 10 best cows and, you know, there'd be singing competitions, you know, for cows. <laughs> and then we see the opposite happening on American Idol where it's like, okay, maybe you think you can do that, but you don't quite do that as good as you think you do. Somebody needs to say something. But the gift of music, even for those who can't carry tune, Amy's father um, <laughs> had trouble with this. Uh, Miss Ruby's husband had a little trouble with this. The choir director's <laughs> husband. The reason you knew he couldn't sing was because he was not in the choir. There's the only way that he was not there. But sang. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It did sing. And then there are people who have a gift for this, and some people who don't have a gift, but you're supposed to sing. Just like all things in the Lord. There are things we're told to do, and you might say, like evangelism, for example, sharing the gospel. Well, I don't have that gift. Well, you Okay, sorry, but you still have to do it. <laughs> it's what you do. You share the gospel with people. Somebody has a gift for it, maybe it just comes easier. They have a greater responsibility to do more with that gift. But we all have a responsibility, and sometimes you don't know what your gifts are, and that can be because you're not serving. So the way you find your gifts is by 
service. If you've never tried to sing, you have no idea whether or not you can sing. And then perhaps there's somebody who can help you sing on and on and on with this music thing. But this is key to understanding Revelation chapter 19 because the command is for all of heaven and earth to sing. And it, it doesn't even need to be a command. It's like, this is what we're doing. And you hear this voice from heaven. And what are they singing? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Salvation, glory, and power. So these are three attributes of God. And this is why they're singing. At the destruction of evil. Salvation. Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. John 3.16. This is how God loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son so that the believers in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Salvation belonging only to God. Psalm 3.8. Jonah 2.9. Revelation 7.10. Revelation 19.1. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Revelation 7.10 says, it belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we must remember as we look at this passage particularly that the Lamb is Jesus Christ. Why is he called the Lamb? Because he was sacrificed for our sins. His blood was shed for us. When we think of a Lamb, he's also called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But they're not saying here that salvation and glory and power belong to our, our God. They're not saying um, in 7.10, and to the lion, which will be true, but it's into the lamb. So that what Jesus did to secure our salvation was powerful, and he is powerful, but he defeated sin and death as a lamb. Through humility, through apparent weakness, through... Um, humbling himself. And so what this is about is as we look at the world and we want to make a difference, we want to change things, we want there to be peace out of chaos, how are we supposed to do it? And we know as the church is supposed to be by following the Lamb of God. So how did he do it? Well, he went to the cross and died for our sins. Okay, that's what he did. He is our head. He did this for us, but now we've been united to him by his spirit. And so how, what type of people ought we to be? And this is what we're called to do. First, praising him for his salvation. Salvation belongs to him. And then secondly, glory belongs to him. Glory is this word that just means, sometimes it seems light. It's called a heaviness, a weightiness, a substantialness, this glory that belongs to God and him alone, which he also, he says, I will not give to another. And then we see God the Father glorifying Jesus. It's like, okay, now will be, that means Jesus and God and Holy Spirit are a trinity. Now will be glorified, but it will not be the same glory that is of the Father. We receive glorified bodies, and it'll say there's one glory of a heavenly body and another glory of a different kind, but there's a separateness to the glory that belongs to God as we give to Him this ultimate glory that belongs only to Him. And then power belonging to our God. That's from Psalm 62:11. Power belongs to God. A famous verse that we use a lot 
2 Corinthians 4, 7, which is we have this treasure, this gospel, this message in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power comes not from us, but from God. So why are we so feeble? Why are we so fragile? Why don't we just suddenly become great and glorious when a person converts? It's like, because the power is not from us. So if we start to suggest that we are the power or even the church itself, as we come together, we present this power before the world that's us. No, we have this power. It's in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is not from us, but from God. So everything that we do in this world is supposed to give the glory to God. We are supposed to make sure that what we're doing is saying glory to God. Jars of clay you will see imperfections. There's, speaking of pianists, and there was this one story I heard, I've probably said it too many times to people, but some, somebody went to this event and there was a woman playing the, the organ or the piano or something, and he said, man, she was just playing to the glory of the Lord, but she was not hitting the right notes. She was not doing a good job. It was, it was a trial to get through, but they got through it, and then people are going up to her, as they'll do, and say, you know, oh, that was wonderful, that was wonderful, and then she, he heard her say, that wasn't me, that was the Holy Spirit. And he said, I remember thinking, probably I shouldn't have thought it to myself, but I sh he said, I sure thought the Holy Spirit would be able to play better than that. So you got to be able to say humbly that I am a jar of clay. I am attempting to be used by God to allow his glory to shine forth from me. And that's what we do because we will fail. We will fall short. We will do all these things. But we must remember that's because we're not God and we don't have to be. But, and it has been clichedly said that it's through our cracks that his light shines brightest. So we just have to remember that, that we do not have to have a perfection of our light because he is the only true and perfect light. Verse 2, his judgments are true and just. So they're praying, when, they, when God has judged, it will be true and it will be just. When you want to see truth and you want to see justice, you will see Babylon judged. You saw justice and truth on the cross where our sin was judged. So as believers, we no longer cry out for personal justice. We cry out for continued grace and mercy that we would not be treated as our sin deserves. But in Christ, we are, see, we are treated in the beloved. We are forgiven our sins so that we are now adopted, cleansed, brought into the family of God with God the Father as our Father too and Christ as our brother so that he is able to lavish on us all these gifts that we're able to experience, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the judgments that God will make in this world will be true and just. And then why are they singing it? Because he's judged a great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. So you know, that's the thing. You know, you want justice, you want to see it happen, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so it's one of the reasons we need to be about evangelism so that we can pull people out of this great wrath to come, telling people of the great salvation, such a great salvation that we have. And then he says he's avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's an answer to Revelation 6, 9. If you want to turn there real quick, Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, 
And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, we'll see that more later, and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. And so then we see here in Revelation 19, verse 2, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This is the Revelation 6 prayer answered. We are here at this point. There has been justice. When we cry out, how long? How can this stand? Don't you care? Haven't you heard? Where are you? There's coming a day, and it will be great, and it will be fearsome. And then verse 3, the second hymn, once more, they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So they're not just singing praises to Yahweh because of a destruction that happened, but this smoke goes on forever in this apocalyptic language. It's like this is something that there is an eternal judgment for. There's not going to be, she's come back, it's happened again. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as a sun, uh-oh, what's that, harlot Babylon? Where'd she come from? Ah! You know, she figured out a way. It's like every movie you've ever seen, I don't know. I mean, gosh, if you keep up with all this Star Wars stuff, this extra canon things they talk about, that's not in the movies. It's like there's, you know, there's people that obviously have been killed and then they show back up it's like well that's no good you can't you do this this is not going to happen with god when evil is destroyed that's it that's it and the smoke will go up from her forever verse four and the 24 elders in this particular hymn they are also now who are the 24 elders they are god's redeemed glorified people they're closer to the throne than the angels even remember the throne room scene in heaven is god on the throne and the lamb he's in the center of it all and then there's a circle concentric circles like this and then but closest to the throne closer to the throne are god's redeemed and glorified people than even the angels are and then there's these four living creatures you know, we're looking back to Ezekiel in different places. He's a cherubim. We see him in Revelation 4, 6 for the first time, uh, representing, you know, all living and creatures and godly powers where they're, you know, seeing everywhere and they are able to, you know, God's power and work is going out through all of creation. So you have all of creation falling down and worshiping God who is seated on the throne and they say, Amen, Hallelujah. I won't get into the amen for as much as I did hallelujah. Another Hebrew word, transliterated, amen. Uh, the way it's pronounced in it supposedly is amen. If you want to hear the actual Hebrew, amen, amen. Jesus would say amen, amen. And then English translations would say truly, truly, or verily, verily. But what it means is amen. And we'll incorrectly sometimes use it. I mean, when I was younger, like junior high or so, and I, I remember praying at night in the bed, going to sleep, and I'd pray, and I always said, amen. It was like you're sending a cable, and you say, stop, you know, I'm, I'm coming home soon. Stop. Be there when I get there. Stop. You know, or you got a microphone, and it's like, okay, I heard that. Over. 
Yes, sir, I got that. Over. You know, and I had to say amen in my mind because I didn't want anything else I might have happened to thought to have been heard as if it were prayer. I wanted to make sure that you know, this was the, the closing. Sincerely yours, John Black. You know, it was kind of like the amen. Okay, we can do that. Um, it's also a good thing when we're playing it, praying in public. Sometimes I know when I'm uh, uh, serving at the table of the Lord here, um, it's hard to know, is he still praying? Is he telling us that do we... Would it, so I'll try to make sure to say amen at the end of a, a prayer so that it's a, a clue in for people to know, okay, stop praying. <laughs> and now we're reading the word of the Lord. But if you say amen at the end, it's because you're saying, I know you're gonna, you can accomplish these things. The truthfulness of all this. Amen is, it has been stated that it is, I wrote this down because I'd never heard this before. I was reading about the word amen. Uh, where's my quote? Where's my quote? Anyway, oh, it's in here. It says, it is the best known word in human speech. Like it's, it, it's carried over into so many different languages as just amen that it is the most recognizable word. And I would venture to guess that at least among Christians all over the world, the second most recognizable word is hallelujah. Um, and, and even more so than you might think Jesus Christ, because uh, in, in Haitian Creole is, is um, Jay-Z, which I know, it's like Jay-Z and Jesus, Jay-Z Christ. So, amen, hallelujah. I don't care where you go. Christians will know Amen, hallelujah. Whatever language, wherever they are. Amen, hallelujah. So we get this hint of this musical thing being sung out um, in unison, and then these words that people know and they hear. Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, well, you know, it's like if you say something and somebody in a congregation says, amen, they mean, yes, I agree. Let that be so. That's good. <laughs> so that's what they're saying here. Amen. Hallelujah. They're saying, yes, that's what we ought to be singing. That's what we're going to do. They're emphasizing it. They're saying, amen. Hallelujah. Singing praise to God. Praise our God. So this is, and it's not the word hallelujah here. It's a different word, but they're, they're translating it now. And they're saying, praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Now, this is the same thing he was saying earlier, but now he's, he's adding it up a little more. Uh, like the roar of many waters. Have you ever been anywhere where there's, I remember Great Falls was where my family, my father's family is from. They, they dammed it up. It's a hydroelectric dam now, but they said you could hear those falls for miles away. And all I remember thinking, what must it have been like to have grown up there all your life and suddenly you don't hear the falls anymore? And, but if you've ever been somewhere, this roar of many waters. And then he says, it's like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So these are some of the loudest things imaginable back in that time. And if you've ever heard a mighty peal of thunder, you can attest to it, that's a loud thing. It will wake you up from your sleep. It's booming sound. So this is what he's saying. It's even louder. And they're saying again this third hymn. Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So they're heaping up these things. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So let us rejoice and exult. And that means to exalt. To, to raise his name high before all people. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory 
before the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. You can spend a lot of time talking about the actual marriage and what does this mean, but it certainly goes into the, the, the marriage ceremonies of the time, particularly Hebrew marriage type of ceremonies. But you would have... Um, this feast, but the bride would make herself ready. We do similar things that are still carried on, um, at least for the time being, these images of marriage that God has put in the world, um, the, the mystery of marriage that shows the gospel of Jesus Christ even in it, um, the bride making herself ready. And, you know, there's some of the, of course, there's the pagan stuff we add, like it's bad luck to see the bride before the actual wedding. It's like, well, you know, let's, let's whatever. Some things you just sort of go along with. It's, it's, it's funny and silly, but, you know, it's a good time to say we don't believe in luck. We believe in providence, you know. But, but what is the bride representing? When she comes out in white, when she is presented to the groom. And it's this. And it's the marriage of the lamb, not the marriage of the lion. And this is, this is imagery here. So the marriage of the lamb is the one who has sacrificed, the one who has calmly, patiently, lovingly secured the bride's salvation. And it says the bride has made herself ready. Now, that gets, if that's the only verse you have, it might sound like we've done an awful lot as the bride because we are the bride. This is one of those times when guys get to feel a little uncomfortable with the, the, the gender terms. It's like, you know, women had to put up with this a lot in Scripture. But we're the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. So the church is this bride. Then in verse 8 it says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And this is the opposite image of the harlot of Babylon. You know, she's up there looking all, you know, done up in jewels, but inside of her cup and stuff are blasphemies and idolatry, terrible things. But the church is not supposed to be like that, the opposite of that. Um, and it has been granted to the church to clothe ourself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So, you have to take the rest of the Bible to interpret the Bible so that we don't do wrong things with this. So it starts back with Adam and Eve, the first time you see clothing or lack thereof, and then God taking care of things. So Genesis 3, 7, after the fall, after they sinned, they saw that they were naked, and so they sewed together fig leaves as loincloths to cover up their nakedness. And we know that this represents them. It's something they really did, but we do that today by trying to have our own righteousness cover up our own sinfulness. We try to take care of that on our own, and God says no. In Genesis 3.21, Yahweh God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And still we tried to hide our own sin with our own deeds. And Isaiah 64.6 tells us that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So when we try to cover up our own sinfulness, we're doing it with filthy rags. You, you can't do it. Christ must cover our sin. So Adam and Eve told the day you eat, you shall surely die. 
Well, they didn't die, and so one solution to this is, well, they died spiritually, which death did enter into, and you see the genealogy after this, and goes with this, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So death is ruling from this time until Christ. But also they didn't die because of the substitute that was made there, of the death of an animal, the shed blood, and covered with the skin of that animal, representing the righteousness of Christ. God clothing them. I mean, think about things you've done. I mean, anytime I'm in a group of younger people and we're talking about, like children particularly, and we're talking about Adam and Eve, they are really upset with Adam. And this past week, we were talking about that, and one of the kids said, well, can he got a different Adam? Can he got somebody else? <laughs> get, get, well, we should have been some other guy <laughs> that could have got up there and done better. It was like, we would have all have done the same thing. You know, the other guy is Jesus Christ. This is the one that had to come. This is what this all points to, is it had and must be and only can be Jesus Christ. So he has clothed us. It's him in the garden who's walking in the spirit of the day, the cool of the day, and saying, where are you? Even at that time, not thundering into the garden with judgment on his people, where judgment and curses are pronounced. But even then, in Genesis 3.16, the Proto-Evangelion, the first preaching of the gospel, there's going to come one who will crush the serpent's head, but he will crush your heel. So there's a gospel coming in even at the worst. So think of your worst. Is it worse than what Adam did? And our hearts, we should be saying to ourselves, yeah, kind of, you know, we had all these reasons why, but not greater than that sin and your sin is not greater than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So anybody who believes their sin is too great for Christ to forgive means they have a very low view of the significance of... Like some people like to elevate the power of their sin over God rather than elevating the power of God over sin. And so that's what we have to make sure we're doing is elevating the power of God over sin. And then in Ephesians 5, which is a place we must go quickly here, Galatians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, famous passage that talks about um, the relationship of Christ to the church as being a, an image of uh, marriage, <clears throat> wives, this is um, beginning in 25, husbands, love your wives as like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, in other words, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself. And this is what we see at the marriage of the Lamb. We're seeing in Revelation 19, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Then we're told that in the same way, husbands, talking about us, guys who are married, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So if you're not nourishing and cherishing your wife, you're saying that, you're saying that the way I nourish and cherish my wife is the way Jesus does it. And God forbid. He does it perfectly. We do it imperfectly. Sometimes husbands do it horrifically. It's very terrible sin. So we have to be careful with this. 30. Because we are members of his body. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this is the way it's supposed to work in godly marriages. It's a, we're supposed to represent the marriage of Christ to the church, the relationship of Christ to the church. And then we see in Revelation 7, the clothing is the unconditional, gracious gift of God. That it's the, well, real quick. All right, Revelation chapter 7. This is the, the chapter of the 144,000. I saw angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow or earth or sea or any. And so holding back judgment for right now. In verse 2, I saw another angel ascending and rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and called with a loud voice to the four angels who've been given power to harm earth and tree. Do not harm the earth and trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So this is the salvation of the church, the 144,000. In verse 9, and I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribes, people, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their heads, crying out with loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is that throne room scene of salvation that we're seeing again at the destruction and at the beginning of the final destruction of all things evil in this world. Romans 13, 14 tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're talking about is how the church has been granted to clothe herself with this fine linen. It's through Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 12, we're told as his holy ones, beloved and holy and beloved chosen ones that were to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, that these are the things that we should be exhibiting in the world because one day we're going to be clothed in this wonderful, beautiful righteousness and we're supposed to be now exhibiting it, exhibiting it even now through jars of clay. Not living our lives like it didn't even make a difference. We're supposed to be lights in the world pointing to Jesus Christ. Anybody can add to the chaos. It's easy, but our prayer is for God's kingdom to come. And Jesus says, it's like a grain of mustard seed, though it's very small when it grows, it becomes great in the garden. And in closing, the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's, there's a calling for the, everyone who hears the gospel to come. Many are called, few are chosen. If you hear the calling of God by the Holy Spirit, if he has awakened your heart to the things of God, that you need him, you recognize your nakedness, you recognize your sinfulness, you recognize your need for a Savior, then you're called to this supper. And the word supper is the same word, you know, I think we would call it dinner. Um, or it could be feast, banquet. The same word that's used for the supper of the Lord. So we have here the supper of the Lord. In heaven, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, this great feast, this great banquet. This is called a great feast, a great banquet, but it's sort of like the you ain't seen nothing yet. This is what we have to get us through now. This is what we have to get us through today, and it's enough. But when we finally see him in heaven in his glorified righteousness, it will be a marriage feast of Lamb, and he says, I will eat this with you afresh again in heaven at this great time. He said, these words are true. 
the true words of God. I fell down at his feet to worship him. He says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Jesus didn't deny worship to himself, another way that we see that he is God. But the angel is saying, you know, if you see an angel, the first thought might be, whoa. You know, but if you also see one of the saints in heaven in a glorified condition, and you were to see that now, you'd go, whoa, and want to go lay down and, and bow down and worship. But don't do this. You worship God, but you are to worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This means that believers all have a prophetic role, the prophetic role of the entire church, and the, the prophecy is the testimony of Christ, the solemn declaration of a witness under oath to profess the truth, an open declaration that God is who he says he is, the gospel is what it is, and that people need him. So where are we putting our hope? Who wins in the end? A political power? An earthly power? A country? A king? Yes, yes, a country, the church, the king, Christ. The gospel has gone forth, the lamb of God slain for our sins. He is our victory. You want to put your hope into something? You want to put your time into something? You want to put effort into something that's going to actually win in the end, that's going to make a difference, that's going to actually defeat all the powers of sin and darkness? Then put it into Christ, put it into the church, put it in your time and your effort into glorifying God, um, telling others about him, pointing others to him, demonstrating with your lives, your talents, your treasures, everything that you have, that he means more to me than anything else in this world. And if he does, then you'll love him and you'll love your neighbor. And you'll find a way to express that in your worship of God. Let's pray. Father God, help us to love and worship and serve you. Help us to... Um, shine this light of our lives in the world as a church together and as individuals. Lord, as it's hard and difficult, things happen. Help us to remember these things will be set right. Therefore, this treasure we have in jars of clay is the surpassing powers from you, not from us, but to you. All power and glory and honor, Lord, to you. So we look forward to the time when we will see an end to all hostility. But the hostility between you and the church is over. We pray that people who are still under your wrath and curse would hear the gospel so that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and they would be transformed into the likeness of your image and we would be able to follow you wherever you go. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.